As always, it's my pleasure and privilege to open up God's Word with you today. So if you do have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open them up with me to the book of Isaiah. As we return there, after taking a little bit of a break, uh, a good break for our Advent series, and I remember when Pastor Jay assigned me this text a few months ago, and thinking about Christmas, Christmas time, and 26th, you're up, Ben, and here's uh, your topic, uh, God's providential rule over evil. And I thought, Merry Christmas to me. (laughs) Thanks, Pastor Jay. Uh, So here we go today, 10th chapter of the book of Isaiah, that's where you're headed And we're going to be looking at almost the whole chapter there. We're going to start in verse 5 and go through the end of that chapter together. So as you're turning there, though, I'd like to begin this morning with a bit of a mental exercise. Uh, It's going to require your imagination. So as best you can, I want you to transport yourself into a schoolroom. And I say schoolroom intentionally because I don't want you to think of a modern classroom. I want you to think of an older schoolroom where the disciplinary measures uh, maybe took a little bit more of a harsher form, if you know what I'm getting at here. I'm talking about being smacked with a rod or one of those paddles, you know, with the fancy holes in them that make it travel faster through the you know, air. Maybe some of you uh, are imagining this uh, a little better than some of us. Uh, but here you are in this classroom, and let's say that you are the teacher's pet, You're the favorite, and now I understand maybe for some of you this has got a lot more difficult to imagine. You're the favorite, okay? And as the favorite, the teacher, he expects you to be behaving the best. He wants you to be an example to the other students around you. But one day, the bad kid, you know, the troublemaker, he gets placed right next to you. You know who I'm talking about. And he pokes you. And what do you do in response? Well, you do what any school kid would do. You poke him back. Some of you are like, I would never do that. Some of you are like, oh, yeah, come on, let's do this. So poke back and forth. Pokes turn into shoves. Shoves are joined by insults. And before you know it, wham, knuckle sandwich you've given him right in the schnoz. Justice is being served here. And that happens to be the exact moment when the teacher catches you. So you know. You're in trouble. You know you did something wrong. You know punishment, harsh punishment, is coming. So you're bracing yourself. The teacher sorts it out, and he determines that not only you are guilty, you, ha- you had a reason for punching him. So he-, he determines that both you and the troublemaker are guilty, and he reams you both out in front of the whole class, and you're, you're bracing for what you know is coming next. Here comes that paddle, and you turn around to see that it is not surprisingly, to your shock, the teacher who is wielding the paddle, but it is the bad kid, the troublemaker. He's holding it, and the teacher's allowing him to be the inflictor of your punishment, to take swings at you, to hurt you, and he does. Now, how does that make you feel? How do you feel about the teacher? Are you really his favorite? I don't know. I don't feel like it right now. You're letting this guy take swings at me. Why? Okay, end of exercise. That was a very imperfect way, I understand, of attempting to get us into the mindset of the people of God that we find in our text today. Isaiah is going to tell them that God is using this wicked nation of Assyria to be his instrument of judgment against them, to be the ones who brings his punishment on them. Did they do something wrong. Well, in the first nine chapters, we've talked a lot about what Israel has done wrong. Yes, they're guilty. Do they deserve punishment? Absolutely. But does it have to be like this, they're thinking? Do you have to use Assyria to be the one to swing at us? Why would God use such an evil people against his own people? And this is the same kind of questioning that we find a different prophet, the prophet Habakkuk, asking directly to God. Similar questions here, and he was under very similar circumstances, except in his case, it wasn't God using the Assyrians to judge his people, it was God using the Babylonians. So very similar. And Habakkuk, he's not exactly shy in asking God very direct questions. He's wrestling with God 
about this? How could you let this happen, God? Why would you do this to us? Why would you use someone with such evil intentions to succeed in those intentions against us? And he asks a question, Habakkuk does, that is central to the tension in our text today, which is why we're going to read it. But also because I think it's a question that all of us, every single one of us has asked at one point or another. He asks this. First, he's going to say something true about God, and then he'll have a question. He says this. God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And here's the question. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Do you see what he's asking here? He's grappling with the very character of God. For what he knows to be true about God does not seem to be lining up with his real everyday experiences. What he knows to be true about God is that he is holy, that his eyes are too pure, that that God cannot look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrongdoing. He is a just God. He does not let wickedness go unpunished. He knows that God loves his own people and all that that he knows about God doesn't seem to be lining up with, with what he's seeing around him or what he knows is coming. He sees evil around him. He sees, seems to him that evil seems to be doing pretty well, God. The Babylonians are going to come and destroy God's holy city. They're going to rip God's own people from the land that he promised them to inhabit. God, how could you let this happen? Why do you not intervene? What is the word that Habakkuk uses? He says, God, why are, how can you be silent while this goes on? And for us, in a dark, broken world where we are regularly confronted with evil, just as Habakkuk was, we, we find ourselves asking the same questions. It seems that God is just sitting on his hands while evil seems to be gaining ground everywhere around us. God, aren't you going to do something? Aren't you going to intervene here? Aren't you going to help me with this? Have you asked those questions before? Well, there are days and even seasons in our life where we're so trampled upon and overwhelmed that that we're tempted to believe that evil is winning. But our text today and the rest of Scripture is very clear that that premise, that evil is winning, is absolutely false. Victory belongs to God and God alone. Yes, the power of evil is very strong and it's devastating. Yes, There is great pain and sorrow, sorrow that will still yet come. That is a direct result of evil. The enemy indeed prowls around like a lion to devour and destroy, and he does. But hear this, neither he nor any force of evil can ever lay a hand on you without the Lord's say-so. Then that brings us to the tension that's present in our text and, and present in our lives. The tension of our lives is, God, if, if you're in sovereign control of everything, why would you ever allow evil to succeed? And without diving into the weeds just yet, we're going to see in our text that God, he doesn't just allow evil, but he strategically controls it for his purposes. And here's the good news, that God's purposes are good. The good news specifically for us is that God's purposes include redemption and restoration, justice, peace, rest from our enemies, and yes, ultimately rest from evil itself. Rest from the evil all around us. Rest from the evil one himself. And especially most of all, deliverance from the evil in our own hearts. This book does not tell the story 
of a God who sits back and lets evil have a, a free reign, a free-for-all to, to wreak havoc on this world. No, this book tells the story of a God who is constantly, always, actively moving in history to defeat evil and to rescue those he loves from its grasp. Though it may seem evil has no real triumph, victory belongs to God and God alone. And God can use even evil to defeat evil. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Does that sound good? Okay. I want to pray before we dive into the text to ask God's help for our time together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do pause now before we open up your word to thank you for it. We thank you for the Bible. Thank you for in it showing us what you are like, not leaving us to guess at what you are like or how you operate, but you, you reveal it to us. And that is our prayer this morning, that you would do just that. Use this time for that purpose, to reveal anew to our hearts who you are. And plant that truth in our hearts. Help us to see you rightly. God, I pray that you would use this time for your good, for our good. Help me to remember all that I have prepared, that you have helped me to prepare. And help that be a blessing. May the words that are spoken here this morning be your words. Do that work. We know we need your help for that. We pray, of course, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, you got your Bibles? Isaiah chapter 10. And we're not going to read the whole passage here. We're actually going to start in verse 5, and we're going to go through verse 11. We're going to read that first section, and then we'll talk about that. And we'll read some more a little later. But for now, we're going to start here, verse 5, going through verse 11. This is God's word. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. And against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend and his heart does not so think but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? We're going to stop there. So here you have God speaking through Isaiah to his people about how he's going to use Assyria, this wicked nation, as the instrument of his judgment. You see the heading there uh, of the first section on your study notes, how can God wield a godless tool? That godless tool, of course, is Assyria, an un godly nation, a godless nation, which God is going to use to judge his people. Now, there is some intended irony in that heading uh, to, again, get us into the tension and the irony that's present here that that would have been present for for the people of God hearing the same message from Isaiah, and there's no way to get around it. The language is very straightforward in verse 5. It's very clear who is using this tool, who's wielding it. Assyria is the rod of my anger. God is the one speaking. I'm the one doing this. The rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. He's the one wielding wielding this rod. And it's also clear why he is doing it. My anger, my fury is the motivation here. That is why he's using such a horrible tool. The, The implication is plain enough. Like an angry father grasps a wooden paddle to punish his child, God grasps the rod of Assyria to judge his children because he is angry with them. And verse 6 is where you find the irony. Who does God dispatch this judgment against? Well, let's look at it. Verse 6, against a godless nation I send him. Well, who is this godless nation? Here's the irony. It is Israel. It is, in fact, the very nation 
that God has chosen from among the nations to be a light to the nations, to be a kingdom of priests. This is God saying he's going to use wicked Assyria upon wicked Israel. And Israel was supposed to, in their obedience to God's law and their worship of him and him alone, be godly, not godless, in order that they could be a light to show the ungodly nations what God is like. And clearly, they have failed at that, as God calls them here a godless nation, or your Bible might say an ungodly nation. Now, this should, this should jump off the page at, uh, at us, that the original recipients would have felt the same way, that, that God is calling his own people ungodly. He's calling them godless. And not only that, but the people of my wrath. This is still in verse 6. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath. He's calling his own people, the people of my wrath. I command him. Command him to do what? To take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Are you feeling the tension here that Israel would have? The questions that they'd be asking. These are the same people God made a covenant with. A covenant where he promised to make them his treasured possession. And I don't know about you, but I don't exactly let my treasured possession be tread down like the mire in the streets. How could God do this? How could a loving God allow this to happen to his treasured possession, his own people? Consider also that he not merely allowed this to happen, but he intentionally sent the Assyrians to do this. Again, we see that right in verse 6. Against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him. God dispatched them specifically for this purpose. So again, people of Israel are asking, we are asking, how can this be, God? And a different but related question you may have heard of, or maybe you ask yourself, is why would God, if he is loving, if he is good, why would he allow bad things to happen to good people? Or why would God allow bad things to happen to innocent people? Or why would God allow bad things to happen to those he loves and cares about? If he loves and cares about them, why would he allow something bad to happen to them? Why would he allow evil to come upon them? And Another really big question. How can a loving, good God allow evil to exist at all? These are some really big questions, and that's where we're going to wrap up today. Thank you so much for coming. Just kidding. These are questions that Christian theologians have been thinking about for ages, grappling with for a long time. So I I want to set proper expectations here. We're not going to get locked in, neat, perfect answers to all these questions. But there is something that we can learn from our text, specifically about God's governing relationship with evil. That is, how does he deal with evil? And for the tension that we cannot address today during our limited time and from our text, uh, I hope that we can rest in the tension that's unresolved, as Job did, when he said, God, there are some things that you know that are too wonderful for me to know. You have knowledge that is too wonderful for me. That was what makes him God and us not, right? So with that in mind, with that mindset, understanding our limitations, let's roll up our sleeves a little bit together here and, and let's, let's get into this. Uh, now, fair warning, we are about to wade into the deep a little bit theologically, okay? So... This is your warning. Thinking caps are required beyond this point. But let's just get right to it. First of all, as we've already mentioned several times, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. So this is our first term amongst some other terms that we need to identify and define. I think these terms will be helpful for us. These terms are actually not found directly in Scripture. You're not going to see God is sovereign in the Bible, using that word sovereign. But it's a reality about God that does come from Scripture. Does that make sense? So that's what these terms are all about. The terms we use to define the realities that we see in Scripture. So the first one this morning, these will all be helpful for us as we think about this problem of evil. The first is that God is sovereign. God is the great ruler. 
He's the supreme one. There is no one over him. He is the sovereign of everything. He's the king of everything, the ruler of everything, not just some things, all things, everything. There is no limit to his domain. Everything is under him. He is over it all. And so as the sovereign ruler, he is in control of everything. He is also, as the sovereign ruler, able to do whatever it is that he decides to do. He's able to do whatever it is that he wills. Likewise, then, that also means that nothing can happen in his domain, in his control, which is everything. Nothing happens or nothing occurs that he does not give permission to happen, that he does not allow or that he does not permit. So on your study sheet there, there are some references found in Scripture that speak to God's sovereignty. There's a lot. I only put a few there. And most of the ones that I put there state that God can do whatever it is that he pleases. Job, the Job reference there, he says it a little differently. He says, I know that you, God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So you hear there the reference to God's ability to do whatever it is that he wills. Job says, I know that you can do all things. You can do whatever you decide to do. But then the second part is very interesting. Job says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And the word purpose there is very key. In defining God's sovereignty, we've spoken a lot about his rule over everything, his control of everything. But we have said very little about his purposes, How does God use that control? What are his purposes in using that control? If God is able to do whatever he wills, then we would assume that whatever he purposes gets done. And that's precisely what Job is saying here. And the term for that, it's an outworking of God's sovereignty, how he uses that control. The term for that is called God's providence very much related to his sovereignty. It's an outworking of his sovereignty. The fact that he's the ruler of all, how does he he rule? That's called God's providence. And that's our second term, the providence of God. I defined it this way. The providence of God is the constant, continual, always happening. It's the outworking of his sovereign rule, how he uses his sovereignty, whereby he does this. He ensures, he makes certain that his purposes What he wants to get done is accomplished. His purposes are accomplished. Now, that's the Ben McArdle definition. So, probably flawed. So I like the way some other people say it. John Piper says it this way. This is the providence of God. Absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purposes, God sees to it that it happens. I'll say it one more time. Absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purposes God sees to it. He makes sure that it happens. And this is not something God does some of the time. He is always doing this. And Wayne Grudem's definition keys in on that continual nature of God's providence. I'm not going to read it, but the point is that God is never not working out his plans, but that he's constantly, continually, always involved in the ordering of things for his purposes to be accomplished. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah gives us fantastic insight into the providence of God. God speaks through Isaiah, right? So this is God revealing to us this truth about himself. And God says in Isaiah 14, 24, it's fascinating. As I have planned. So he's talking about plans. He's referencing plans that he has. These are plans that have no beginning. They are eternal plans. God has no beginning, and so his plans also have no beginning. These are his his eternal plans. He says, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. What I have planned is going to get done, is what he's saying. In chapter 46, it's, it's stated in, I think, a really beautiful way. God says this, I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, So he's saying there that from the very beginning, I declared the end, what it was going to look like. I decreed how it was going to end and everything in between. This is what's going to happen. He says, I declare the end from the beginning. From the ancient times, things not yet done. Another way of saying the same thing. 
that stuff that hasn't even happened yet, guess what? From the very beginning, I have declared that that was going to happen. Saying, my counsel shall stand. What I said is going to happen. He says, I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That doesn't mean that God speaks, lets everything happen, and then at the end turns it all around to accomplish his purposes. It means that he's continually seeing to it that what he speaks stands throughout history to the end just as it is written. That's the providence of God, that he orchestrates not just some things, all things to work together to bring about his purposes. The Bible contains no existence of chance. Chance does not exist. There are no accidents. Nothing can happen. Nothing does happen that is contrary to the outworking of God's wise eternal plan. That means if it does not further God's plan, then it simply does not happen. Okay, how are we doing so far? Tracking? Okay. One notion that we must strip from our minds is this, that, that God takes some kind of laid-back, hands-off approach to governing his creation, that he just, he's created, now he lets it go. No. Another notion is that God really only cares about the really big, important stuff, like the world-changing moments and the life-changing moments in our lives. So that's when he steps in and intervenes. But other than that, the small details, he just lets those go. No, that's not true either. That's not how the Bible describes God's providence. So I want to read another definition of his providence that I think will help correct those misconceptions. This one, fascinating, and again, beautiful, and it comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, if you're familiar with it, which is put together in the late 1500s. You'll see that reflected in the language. It's set up in a question-answer format. The question is this, what do you understand by the providence of God? The answer. The almighty everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures. So it's saying there that he governs, still, always is, governing. He's in control, active, right? How so? Like this. And so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things, come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. There is not a drop of rain or a snowflake in this instance that falls to the ground that his fatherly hand did not guide. Incredible. Wonderful, Job says. Things too wonderful for me to know. This is God. So, if God is in such a high level of control as that, then where does evil fit into all this, right? We return to the tension of our text. How could a loving God, a good God, who can do whatever he pleases, who controls all that happens, how could he allow evil to even take one step? Well, in all this, we've talked a lot about the power of God and the ability of God, but we haven't talked much about the wisdom of God. Just because God has the power, the ability, and the authority to exert direct control over everything at all times does not mean that he does just that exactly. We assume that because God is able to do everything he pleases, that he causes everything he pleases to simply happen at all times. Here is a simple truth. The sovereign God of the universe permits. He allows things to happen. This is a way of saying that in his perfect wisdom and according to his wise plan, there is a point, a point where God allows things to happen that he did not directly cause himself. This is where we get free will. This means that in his wisdom, God allows things to happen that he finds displeasing. 
How do we know this? Well, the existence of evil points us to this, of course, which God is not pleased with. And we must be very clear, as the Bible is, that God is never the cause of evil. God is holy. Think of Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah came to meet God, holy, holy, holy was cried out. No, God is holy. He cannot commune with sin. He cannot and does not cause it. However, in his wisdom, in his wise providence, his perfect plan, he allows evil to exist. And that is what we call God's permissive will, which is different from his perfect will. In God's permissive will, he allows things to take place that his perfect will takes no pleasure in. Let's use a, a, tangible, a tangible illustration, I think, that'll help us understand this. Parents are a great example of this. Parents, did you know that you have a permissive will that is different than your perfect will? You don't necessarily use those terms, but you have dreams for your children. You have what you want for them, right? What you could dream up, the, the ideal for your child. In that ideal, in your perfect will for them, would you want them to get hurt? to fail, to make mistakes. No, you don't want that for them. But in your wisdom as a parent, in your permissive will, you give them limited freedom to make choices, to, to mess up, to get hurt, uh, to fail. Because you know in the end, that will accomplish your perfect will. What, what, what you want best for your child. So in your permissive will, you give them that limited freedom to fail, to mess up, because you know it will bring about what you want ultimately, the greater good, what is best for your child. Does that make sense? So that's a little picture into how God deals with evil, how he permits it for greater good. I want to use a biblical example as well, real quickly, and that, and that is the example of Job. Does God, in his perfect will, desire for Job to suffer? Of course not. He doesn't want Job to suffer. But in his perfect will, does God want Job to trust him and to know that he is God? Of course he does. And so to accomplish his perfect will, in his permissive will, God allows Satan himself to torment Job. To torment him. So that... In the end, God's perfect will would be accomplished. That, at the end of the day, is what we have to remember. That God has a greater purpose. That all the evil he does permit is only to further that cause. God, in his wisdom, is able to use evil to defeat evil to use evil against itself, to use what man intends for evil for good. So that's how I want to uh, summarize all this, is that God's providential rule over evil means this, that he's able to overrule evil in such a way that he's able to use it for ultimate good. Of course, the reference there is to the story of Joseph. Joseph endured some real hardships, evil against him in that life. But God used that to save a nation later on, to deliver them. God ultimately working what man intended for evil for good. And that is a great comfort for us. Okay, deep breath. That was, that was the real heavy lifting section. All right, how are we feeling? Uh, that was a little detour from our text, but an important one for us to take. And if you want to, we're not going to today dive deeper on the topic uh, necessarily, but if you want to, this book I found very helpful to me, If God, Why Evil by Norman Geisler. So if you're interested in, in reading this, I, I definitely recommend it. Uh, and considering the weight of the topic and the difficulty of the topic, it's actually a, a pretty surprisingly easy read. So I definitely recommend that to you if you're looking to dive deeper. But we need to return to our text after this detour. And again, I believe an important one for us because now it's, it's giving us some clarity on what God is doing here when he's using Assyria, verses 5 and 6. Uh, let us down that discussion trail about God using Assyria as the rod of his anger, his, his instrument of judgment, and how could he do this? And as we learn from our detour, God must then have a greater purpose 
for using Assyria this way, which is going to be revealed in our text. We're not going to get there quite yet, but keep that in mind. Now, in verses 7 through 11, we're going to get a little detail and insight into the mind of Assyria in all this. So Assyria, yes, is God's rod of judgment. He's using them as his instrument, his tool. But what is Assyria thinking in all this? Well, verse 7 is, is very key. Look at it. But he, that's Assyria, does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. This is a very key verse. It shows that Assyrians, they had no idea they were being used by God for a greater purpose. What was in their heart? Only evil, only to destroy, to cut off nations, not a few. So again, you, you return to that tension for Israel then is, you know, God, look at their intentions. They have evil intentions. Their intentions, you said it yourself, is only to destroy. How could you let someone with such evil intentions succeed? But is that really what God's doing here? Is he just letting Assyria succeed? Letting Assyria have victory? Well, the Assyrians certainly think so. I think they think they're victorious. Look at verse 8. For he, that would be the king of Assyria, he says, are not my commanders all kings? So he's talking about, we've conquered so much that even my commanders now are kings. And he goes on in verse 9, is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? All these are places that they have conquered on their way coming to Jerusalem. Psh, knock these guys down, knock these guys down, knock these guys down. None of them were threats. You know what they all have in common? They were losers. It's like an undefeated boxer as he's facing the guy he's about to, to box. And he's like, you're no different than Tim, Larry, Bob, David. I took all those guys down. You know what they all had in common? They're losers. I'm going to win. It doesn't matter who's in front of me. I'm going to win. I know. Bob, Larry, whoever I said, those are intimidating boxer names. The point is, Assyria thinks they are doing this, that they're victorious. All right? I don't think that's what's going on here. That, that will be made clear here. You can see the arrogance. And the arrogance especially comes up in verse 8, which we read earlier. For he says, again, this is the king of Assyria, are not my commanders all kings? Again, he's saying his commanders are kings. And if his commanders are kings and he's the king over them, over those kings, what does that make him by implication? The king of kings. He's saying, I am the king of kings. Now, how do you think that's going to sit with God? You can think. Verses 10 through 11 are even worse. We're not going to read them, but he talks about how basically he's better than any god that's out there. He's conquered so many nations, nations that have hundreds of gods. Those gods weren't able to stop me. Again, what do they have in common? They're losers. I'm victorious. I am greater. And I'm going to do to you, Israel, what I did to all those other gods. I'm going to do to you and your God what I did to all them. I'm going to destroy them because I am, I am greater. So you see the pride here, and God is going to humble that. The, the arrogance is astounding as he does not even realize that he is successful in his military conquest only as much as God allows him to be. So that leads us into the next heading on your study sheet there, which I'm calling the first of two comforts that we find in our text here. Comforts for the people of Israel. Remember, they're, they're receiving this as a declaration of judgment. God's saying, I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to use this horrible, wicked nation to do that. But in the midst of that, he has these two comforts for his people. It's not all judgment. It's also hope comfort for his people. And I think these two comforts are also comforting for us as well. The first is this, that evil has no true victory or no lasting victory. While Assyria certainly thought they were victorious, God would quickly correct that notion. Look at verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, so that's him talking about using Assyria, the work of judgment that he's going to use Assyria to do when he's finished with that, when he's finished using them against his own people, what's he going to do? He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So he's going to turn from judging his people with Assyria to then judge Assyria for their own wrongdoing. And this would have been comforting in two ways for Israel. First, God revealed that there was a stopping point 
to his judgment against them, that it wasn't going to last forever, that he wouldn't just let Assyria come in and destroy them, but that there would be a stopping point to this. This was not a final judgment, but a temporary one. And that's the fill-in there on your study sheet, is a temporary judgment. And I must apologize, I did not put the answers in the answer key for these two fill-ins, temporary and the next one. So if you were one of those who went ahead and filled in all the answers ahead of time, I'm so sorry, you need to cross cross whatever you filled in there. Or maybe you found out at the end there's two blanks. But my mistake on that, this one is temporary. The second comfort is this. It is comforting because in his justice, God would not let the Assyrians go unpunished. That's, that's the fill in there, unpunished. They would not be unpunished for their own wrongdoing. So he wasn't going to use them to punish Israel and then just let them off the hook for their own wrongdoing. And so that helped a little bit with the tension that Israel was feeling is, how can you use these guys and then just let them not get punished? No, God says, I'm going to deal with them. Woe to them. They have an even greater punishment coming. Yes, I'm going to use them to, to punish you, but their punishment, they're, they're not getting off the hook here. All right, so that also would be comforting to the people of Israel. Evil doesn't get left off the hook. And you see why God judges them. Of course, we've talked a lot about Assyrians' pride, but you're going to see more of that pride in verses 13 and 14. We're not going to read that, but the Assyrian king is talking. You're going to see a lot of eyes and me's being used. He's looking at himself. He's only consumed with his own power and might and his accomplishments and thinking that he's the one who's accomplished that. And God directly denounces such pride in verse 15. Let's read that together. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. God's saying a tool can't use the user. A tool is only useful because the user makes it useful. And God's saying, Assyria, you're nothing more than a tool in my hand. And now one that I'm done with and I'm going to discard. So your pride is ridiculous. A tool should not be prideful in his work. It's the user who makes the tool useful And now God's going to discard that tool to the scrap heap. And we see that punishment that God's going to inflict on Assyria detailed in verses 16 through 19. And we're not going to read that, but if you just look over it, you can see how God does not use another nation to bring this judgment on Assyria. Like he he judged Israel with another nation, Assyria. But his judgment of Assyria, he's going to inflict himself. He is going to send the angel of the Lord to do this. And he talks about that. He alludes to it in verse 17, that it's only going to take one day for God himself, one day, to bring down the the great, the mighty Assyria. God will use one day to humble him. And Isaiah would actually record the fulfillment of that prophecy later when, when God would strike down in one night 185,000 Assyrian warriors. They were living one night, dead in the morning. God brought down the most powerful kingdom on earth in one night. He was never not in control. He is always in control. And there will be days when we want to believe that, that evil's winning or that it's gaining ground. But evil has no true victory because evil has no lasting victory. Victory belongs to God and his comforting as well. There's no evil that can escape his judgment. He punishes it all. Okay, quickly now to the second comfort for Israel and for us. That is this. God's eternal plan is worth the present pain. The long haul, it's worth it for the long haul the prize that's coming. And this is highlighted throughout the book of Isaiah, throughout the Bible really, but in Isaiah there's, there's two main themes, judgment and hope. And they're surprisingly intertwined together. Even in the face of judgment, there is hope because God saves. There's not a general hope. There's hope in God because God saves even in the face of judgment, God saves. So this is pointed out specifically to us in our text in verses 20 to 21. Let's read that. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, 
but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. So here we see revealed the greater purpose God had for using Assyria to judge his people. It wasn't to destroy them. It wasn't to wipe out his own people. It wasn't to forsake his covenant. No, actually, it was to further his promises, to further his plan. And the plan is this, so that a remnant will return. Return to where? Return to him. Return to mighty God. The purpose of his judgment was to bring his people back to where they belong, depending on him. Yes, the judgment will be painful, very painful, but God's purpose is worth it to return his people to himself. In the midst of judgment, God offers hope and comfort to his people. That's what he's doing here, and he does so also in verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike you with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. Do you notice the the change in tone here from verse 6 in terms of how God is talking to his people and talking about them? In verse 6, he calls them a godless nation, the people of my wrath. And in verse 24, he says, Oh, my people. Oh, my people. Do you sense the tenderness there? This is God's display of grace and tenderness in the midst of judgment. This is a a father comforting his children. Oh, my people, do not be afraid of the Assyrians. Yes, it is going to be painful. Yes, I am going to strike you. But don't be afraid. Why? Verse 25. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. And my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. Why should they not be afraid? Because even in judgment, even in the face of great evil which they brought upon themselves, there is great hope, a greater hope, that God will deliver them, that he will see them through. And this is God's greatest message to all of us in a world of evil, that God wins. Evil has no real triumph. Victory always has and always will belong to the Lord, the Lord of hosts. So God's words of comfort to his people here are also his words of comfort to us. Hear this. Oh, my people, do not be afraid. Yes, evil is all around you. Yes, evil is even in you. Yes, I know there is and will be great pain still to come. But do not be afraid, for I am with you and I will see you through. Just as I delivered helpless Israel from the hand of the Egyptians by my mighty hand, I will deliver you. Just as I gave victory to Gideon's small militia who had no chance, I will give you my victory over evil when you had no chance. And just as I removed the yoke of Assyria from the necks of my people Israel, I will remove the weight of sin from your hearts. And just as I rose Jesus from the dead, I will raise you from death to life and a life that does not end. We need not be afraid in the shadow of evil because we have hope in the God who saves. His grander plan is worth the present pain. And as we close this morning, we must remember the greatest example of God's providential rule over evil. If we ever doubt God's ability to to use evil for good, or if we ever doubt that God is for us, we must look no further than the cross. Taken alone, Good Friday, when Christ Jesus was crucified, that appeared to be a victory for evil. The death of God. 
And as much as it was the evil of man that put Jesus on the cross, it was also the will of God to sacrifice his own son. Isaiah 53.10 tells us as much, even though he was innocent, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now certainly God found no pleasure in that. It was a day of agony for God. Yet he willed it so. So that unworthy and undeserving sinners like you and me who put Jesus on that cross with our wickedness might be delivered from that same wickedness in our hearts. And God proved when he rose Jesus from the dead that evil has no power over him. That victory belongs to Jesus and that death and evil are defeated in him. So, no, we need not be afraid. There's no reason for us to fear. There's no reason for us to doubt that God is good or that he is for us. For he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. No, God is not against us. Never think it. God is for us. And if God is for us, who could be against us? Would you stand with me and we'll pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pause now to wonder at who you are, that you are God over everything. And as we wrestle with the evil that is very present and real all around us, real evil in our lives, even in our own hearts, thank you that we can trust that you have victory over it that nothing surprises you, nothing changes your plans, but that your good eternal plan, which you declared from the beginning, will be done, and that evil will be done away with, that you offer salvation, that you save us from the evil that is around us, and you do, th- do so through Jesus. We thank you for this great hope. Help us as we leave this place and as we do deal with the real evil all around us and in us that you help us to hold on to you and the truth that we've learned about you today. We know we need your help for this, so we ask for it in the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.